I'm here, as people probably have guessed by now, with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. There's nobody I'd rather talk to, Charles. You have one of the most interesting minds that I've ever encountered. It's really, really brilliant. And I love your books. And particularly, I think your climate book is probably the best book written on climate. And it's so nuanced and unusual and beautiful. But you and I also, we spoke, I think, about a year ago on my podcast. Yeah, I remember that podcast. Uh, if we really want to change things, we've got to step out of this conflict dynamic because it's just a, it's a logjam. Yeah. You have to figure out a different way to do it. And it's how a lot of the stuff you, you talk about, you know, if you try to summarize it, it sounds almost corny or kind of fluffy, but actually it's quite practical as we're now figuring out and it's being effective. People on both sides want to hear about solutions rather than just more tribalism. One of the points I make in the book is into why am I an environmentalist? It wasn't because I got scared. It wasn't because I calculated that bad things were going to happen to me or to us if we didn't do anything. What made me into an environmentalist was experiences of beauty, of love, of loss, of the things that I loved, of grief. When I was a kid, I remember I was standing with my father. We were holding hands even. I was little. And we were looking at a flock of birds, a big flock of birds. And that's when he told me about the passenger pigeons where, you know, whose flocks would go from horizon to horizon for hours and hours, darkening the sun, and that they're extinct. And that like really hit home for me. I cried that night in bed. And I'm wondering if, if you have any experiences like that, because you're you're known first and foremost, or should be known first and foremost for your lifelong environmental work. So so is there an event like that that made you into an environmentalist? I mean, I had the same thing that, that you did. Where I, I heard about the passenger pigeons when I was young and, and, and the dodo bird and learned that the dodo bird, you know, I knew that dinosaurs had gone extinct, but it was so disheartening to me and troubling to me that in our, in the last hundred years that, you know, the dodo bird had gone extinct. And I was like, you know, how could people let that happen? That's, it was something that I experienced as kind of a theft, an assault on, on our rights. And then I had there was a stream that I, you know, when I was growing up, I was in McLean, Virginia, which at that time was a very rural community. It was kind of a, uh, it was farm and horses and, you know, the, the the shop downtown was the saddle shop and the feed store. And, you know, it was really a rural community, which is hard to imagine today because now it's just kind of a suburb of Tyson's Corners, it's, you know, a pavement stuck between Washington, D.C. and Tyson's Corners. I grew up in the 50s and it was Eisenhower's highway program. And they built the first of these highways. It was called Dolly Madison. And it was, you know, connecting to the this web of interstates practically through our backyard, through a neighbor's yard. And that was a place where my brothers and I used to go every afternoon when we got off of school to catch salamanders and bullfrogs and green frogs and crayfish and mud puppies. And we would spend, you know, particularly in the springtime, we would spend hour after hour in that stream and in the pond turning over rocks. And then, you know, the bulldozers came one day and plowed it under. And I experienced that as this, you know, momentous sense of loss. Um, there was a, there was a net, there was a, a, a tree there, a snag where there were great horned owls that nested every year. And I took one of those one year, climbed the tree, and took him 
and Ray, you know, raised him and he was like, he was our, he was like a member of our family. But all of those, you know, those little places were sacred to me. And when the first cars started driving in the highway, my brother and I went up on the hill and threw rocks at them because we felt like, you know, it was an invasion and we got caught and got punished. And the whole event was kind of dramatic for us. And then, you know, I went to work for commercial fishermen on the Hudson when I was older, when I was 29 years old, I went to work for the fishermen and they had had the same experience. They had a, we had a booming fishery on the Hudson, 350 years old. It was on many of the families I represented and and it was a very diverse uh, group of fishermen. There were blacks and whites and Hispanics, but many of the people were the descendants of the Dutch fishermen who had been fishing the river since since Dutch colonial times. And it was a traditional gear fishery. They used the same fishing methods that the Algonquin Indians uh, used to taught to the original Dutch settlers in New Amsterdam and then passed down through the generations. It was a terminal fishery. In other words, you know, you have these huge masses of anadromous fish, of striped bass, of sturgeon, herring, alewives, blue crab that come into the, the river to spawn. And that's really the place where you need to regulate fisheries because then you can count, you know, the recruiting stock and you can calculate how many you need for the next year and make sure. And the fishermen, depending on what the stock was like, they would lift their nets one day a week or two days a week. So nobody would fish the river to allow what they call recruiters, which were the breeding fish up the river and breed mm-hmm. and to preserve the free flow of the river during that point. And so it's the perfect way to kind of regulate a public fishery where everybody agrees to do it. And you you can actually count all the stock because you're not catching fish out in the ocean. And so it had been this incredibly well-regulated regulated fishery for 350 years. They had a business model that worked. And then the General Electric Company dumped its PCBs in the river and Penn Central Railroad dumped oil in the river and made the shad taste of diesel so they couldn't sell the fish anymore. And they were under assault from big polluters who were breaking the law, but they had the political to get away with it. And I recognized at that point that dynamic, which really would define my career, which was, you know, this dynamic of agency capture. Mm-hmm. The story of losing the stream where you and your brother played when you were kids, like that's such a defining image of childhood, finding frogs and turtles, you know, and playing in the water. It's what makes me sad. Um, and I have a loss like that as well, uh, the place where I grew up uh, for the same reason, you know, a highway came through. But what makes me even sadder now is that a lot of kids never even have that to begin with because childhood has migrated indoors almost completely. And children rarely have time outdoors that's unsupervised. And even if the, the parents shove them outdoors, there is not other kids playing outdoors in, in the kingdom of childhood. You know, this is something, it's related to the decline of community. It's related to the decline of public life. It's related to the rising levels of fear. And it transcends any political conversation, really. Like when I talk to, doesn't matter, liberals, conservatives, anybody, people are like, yeah, we don't know our neighbors anymore. So yeah, but that experience of loss, I shared the experience of losing the place I loved to an audience. And a woman said, oh, come on, Charles, don't feel sorry for yourself. We've all been through that. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly my point. Yeah. What is so precious we've lost. And as a substitute for real experiences in nature and real connections, we have these technologically mediated online experiences, like the fishermen you were talking about, why were they able to maintain 
a fishery sustainably for 350 years. It was because they were in relationship to it over generations. They knew the fish. And that kind of relationship, you know, even if it hadn't been destroyed by the polluters, when, when the industrial fisheries come in, they're completely oblivious to that. You know, the, the things that I mourn also, is I, I just the thrill of finding a box turtle, you know, which I don't think mm-hmm. my kids have ever seen a box turtle, a wild box turtle, which is I, you know, I would catch maybe one or two a week. And, you know, it was such an extraordinary creature because, it, you know, the color, every one of them was completely different in the color, in a, a color scheme. And there are all these very brilliant colors. And then they had this very interesting lifestyle where they kind of, you know, they have a territory. And those were all disrupted by the highways because the, the territories were intersected and the black turtles got run over. But they were, very, you know, common enough that you could find them. If you went out looking for a box turtle when I was a kid, you could find them. And then, you know, I talked in my speech in Boston about what the puddles were like. You had these kind of intermittent ponds and streams where the, you know, salamanders bred and the frogs bred. A frog and a salamander can't breed in a fish pond because the fish will eat the, eat the eggs and then they'll eat the tadpoles as soon as they're born. So they, the only place they can really flourish, they, they lay their eggs, is in these intermittent streams that dry up during certain times of the year. And so they won't support fish populations. And so, you know, those were sort of critical areas. And then we got big rain storms and thunderstorms in the springtime in Virginia. And the mud puddles would form on the road in the ditches and the rivets in the road. And those would be loaded with tadpoles and frogs' eggs. And they'd just be bubbling cauldron of life when I was a kid. And I just, I, you know, I loved that. I loved finding them, bringing them home, raising them and the aquariums till they turn into frogs and then releasing them. And my kids will never see that. They'll never see the explosions of color that I saw when I was a kid with the, when the, you know, I walked into the garden and there were monarch butterflies and swallowtails and all these different species of butterflies. I, I could go out any day and with my butterfly net and, and catch butterflies. Today, you know, you can't do that. You know, you and I talked one time about the bug smears on the windshield. Driving in Virginia, particularly driving in the springtime, you had to periodically get out and, and scrape the bugs off the windshield and off the, the head. Yeah. You have to drive with your windshield wipers on sometimes. Yeah, and that's gone. And people will say, well, who cares? It was just bugs. That's a good thing. But that's that's the whole foundation. No, they- <laughs> life, they were the first ones to evolve. And, you know, all the other life depends on them. And, you know, the other, the big losses and songbirds that, you know, my kids will never see. It's really, to me, they don't know what they've lost. And it's that, you know, that fabric, that tapestry of life. St. Augustine, you know, talked about it and said, he talked about the idea that God talks to us most, you know, eloquently through creation. And that creation is like that every every rock is a word, every brook and every leaf is a, you know, is a phrase or a lesson um, that God has for us. There, there's something that, you know, we can learn from just sitting and observing nature we, that we can learn about our creator. And when we, you know, destroy that, we destroy part this critical part of our, you know, relationship with God and the capacity to imagine, the capacity to to understand, to comprehend through observations. And and Augustine compared it to a, a tapestry. The entire tapestry shows the face of God. 
and that through all of these different vectors, through leaves and flowers and grasses and wandering animals and fisheries, and that, you know, today we're pulling the strings out of that tapestry, and it's getting more and more ragged and, and bare and, and dull, and, you know, the colors are muted, and the stars are not even visible anymore. And that... Yeah, so, so no wonder we're attracted to, to the garish colors and fast-moving images of, you know, the internet and entertainment media. So uh, just to slightly change the subject, so you, you're, you're, you're so acutely aware of this loss and then spent so many years basically fighting corporate polluters. And I wonder, you know, so often loss and grief when it's not fully processed can turn into rage, can turn into blame. And, you know, you've been very much a crusader uh, but now I sense that you're undergoing kind of a transformation, you know, where, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you recognize that the crusade against evil isn't enough to solve the problem. So maybe can you can tell me a little bit about, or or your theory, like why do these corporate polluters, why do these government agencies, why are they committing so much evil? Is it because they're full of evil people? Like what's the explanation? I mean, I think they're locked in a system um, that they can't get out of, and that, and you know, human beings have the capacity to blind themselves to the consequences of their actions. If if those, uh, if seeing the, if recognizing the consequences will affect their salaries, you know, as I think it was H. L. Mangan or maybe Upton Sinclair, you know, pointed out something to that effect that that you know you can't convince a man of a fact if the existence of that fact is going to affect his salary. And so people have a way of talking them into, talk, you know, of creating narratives that um, justify behaviors that are very, very destructive. And then they get locked, and then they're all locked in systems that incentivize, you know, these quick returns from destroying things that, that nobody really wants to lose. And there's an economic rule called tragedy of the commons. It says, it says that each one of us if left to our own devices and where the only motive is self-interest, that it is in always in our self-interest to catch the last fish in the ocean. You know, even right. if the, 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 that fish is, you know, booming or bursting with, you know, with eggs and able to perhaps to replenish the species, we still won't let them do it. We're, we're going to eat that last fish uh, because that's mm -hmm. what self-interest says. And somehow we have to step away from self-interest and, and embrace a communal model. And it's really, it's like a transformation of the kind that you described at the beginning of this when you said you didn't become environmentalist uh, out of fear. You became an environmentalist out of love. It's interesting because if you, I, I read Carl Jung's biography about a year ago, and he was the son of a preacher who was very brilliant and who was very accomplished. But his father had this very, you know, sort of angry God, and he had the conventional, he had the, re the rhetoric down of for conventional religion that was fear-driven, that was anger-driven, that was kind of a this um, angry paternal model of God who was a punishing God and uh, and lecturing people about in his Sunday sermons about the uh, fire and brimstone version of hell. And that's why people should behave because otherwise they were going to endure this you know, nightmare. 
for all of eternity. And But Jung himself had these very authentic spiritual experiences from when he was a very young boy, like maybe three or four years old. He began having these very vivid dreams and these, and these, these experiences of synchronicity that he interpreted it as, as God kind of intervening through the laws that he had set up, the natural laws uh, to set up, that he was intervening and breaking those laws in order to kind of notify us as individuals that yeah, I'm here and, and there's something higher than all of these natural laws that I've set up. And Jung had this very beautiful kind of love affair with God from when he was a little kid, which is an authentic spiritual experience. And his father died a very miserable, father in the end lost all of his faith and died this very kind of miserable death, you know, empty, one-dimensional twilight zone that he was living in that was filled, driven by, sculpted by anger and fear. And Jung himself tried to get through to his father on multiple occasions, but his father just couldn't hear it. He was blind to it. And that, I think, is the difference. It's the same kind of, it's a metaphor for, you know, are, are we going to be, for the way that you think about the environment, was, is that the only way we're really going to save this is if everybody loves it, falls in love with it again. You know, fearing some distant, uh, you know, graph is going to show them a doom is going to come in 10 years, which nobody actually believes, you know. Yeah, they've been predicting that for 30 years, that doom was going to come in 10 years. Well, you know, to the uh, to the defense of people who predicted it, it actually is happening. I mean, we're losing things now. And, you know, I because I spend I still spend so much time in nature the changes you know from climate as well yeah that's the thing though the doom isn't happening to us oh. it's happening to other beings by objective measures if you don't include mental illness and addiction and so forth by objective measures we're just fine it's nature that's suffering and and for me this idea that someday we're gonna die too if we don't change our ways is actually kind of dangerous because it's it's suggesting that the reason we should change our ways is primarily what will happen to us. And so it plays into the basic paradigm of the instrumentalization of nature that uses it and exploits it for self-interest and requires that we deny what's actually human nature, which is to love and respect and honor and hold sacred the beings around us. And that's why I, I've been advocating for you know, a change of strategy and rhetoric in the environmental movement to, to really tap back into that fundamental biophilic impulse. From the beginning of my career, I kind of instinct, instinctively followed that course because I remember there was a time when, you know, I had worked simultaneously for NRDC and for the fishermen at Riverkeeper. You know, I was dealing with people who had real lives rooted in, you know, wearing waders up to their hips in mud and water removing fish from nets and the, the joy of catching a, a huge sturgeon in the net and and they you know a two a, a, an 11 foot sturgeon with 200 pounds of caviar in it and uh you know which we have in the hudson or a full net of shad or you know just of catching eel on the weekend and catching goldfish for collectors and you know exploring all these hundreds of species of, of fish that we have in the hudson there's a, a fish uh, uh, that paves the uh, tiles the bottom of the hudson called hog chokers that looks like a hairy flounder and 
And then we get all these tropical fish that come up, you know, from the, on the Gulf Stream that they still think they're in Belize, you know, until the, the winter hits. We get, you know, really the, you know, extraordinary tropical fish. And they were so in love with the river. And that's what motivated them to basically devote their lives to saving it. And I was basically captured by that dynamic and spent my career, you know, working with people who were who were protecting places that were sacred and habitats that were sacred and their livelihoods and communities. And at a time when the environmental movement was increasingly getting caught in climate, which, you know, I believe that the climate is changing. I believe it's carbon induced changes and methane and other molecules that are trapping heat. You know, that's physics. By the way, I'm not believing necessarily all the climate, you know, modelers and everything, but I read the documents that Exxon's scientists produced back in the 70s. Exxon hired scientists who were the best carbon, you know, they knew more about the fate of the carbon molecule in the environment, and they prided themselves on that than any scientists on Earth. And they wrote memos to the executive board of of Exxon saying, if we continue to burn carbon, we are going to eat the globe. And by the way, it's going to be a good thing for Exxon because it will melt the polar ice cap. And there's a lot of oil in there that we can't get at now. And we should be ready to get at it after we've melted the globe. So they wrote letters saying that to their chief executive officer of Exxon. So it wasn't just a bunch of hippie scientists or paid government scientists. It was, you know, people who were Mm -hmm know about carbon i you know i don't know enough about carbon i know you know there's large amounts of people scientists who you know are are terrified of climate change but but aside i was seeing the impacts of carbon on my you know that the fish were now filled with mercury and the mercury every freshwater fish in america has dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh mainly coming from coal burning power plants that alone is enough to us from the, the the high peaks of the Appalachians, the waterways on those are, the, are basically all sterilized from acid rain. We are acidifying the ocean, which to me is more frightening than climate change. You acidify the ocean and the whole fabric of life, you know, all of those little zooplankton require, they need to mobilize calcium out of the water column and they can't do that in order to make their shells, in order to do yeah. You know, I mean, I've researched this topic front, back, left and right, you know, in writing my book. And what I came to is that the things that we need to do most, we have to do whether or not the standard global warming narrative is right. And you just named an example of that, the the coal, the mercury, the particulates, the mining, you know, that destroys ecosystems. What I also came to is that the, the most important thing to do is right now is to preserve any intact ecosystem from you know development from mining from drilling and also to restore and regenerate especially agricultural land and if we do that it's actually not even that hard to completely solve the climate crisis if you agree that it is caused by carbon emissions and if you don't agree about that it's still a good idea because it restores aquifers it restores biodiversity it restores soil productivity down the line. No, yeah. everybody wants healthy food. Everybody yeah. anyway. So, you know, but yeah, you're right. If we do regenerative agriculture, we create a carbon sink like nothing else on earth. 
Yeah. And that, you know, is better than, you know, all this geoengineering, carbon capture stuff that is just causing more problems. And yeah. it's crazy to think that we can fix, you know, their earth with plumbing. So I'm going to shift gears here. Something I've been kind of curious about, you know, both of us were, I would say, COVID dissidents who resisted and publicly criticized various aspects of the COVID narrative. You know, there came, like people sometimes ask me, you know, Charles, how did you stay sane? You know, how did you stay upbeat when all that was going on and when you were being denounced, you know, and, and deplatformed and stuff? And I'm like, how do you know that I stayed upbeat? <laughs> I've actually went through some periods of, of darkness, you know, and even like a really deep kind of doubt where I had moments of, you know, maybe the world isn't crazy. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe society hasn't gone mad. Maybe this isn't a hysteria. Maybe I've been wrong my entire life about everything I've written on. And I spent actually months in some cases, not writing anything and really getting back in touch with what I knew directly, as opposed to, like you were saying before, people believe whatever story is convenient for them to believe, not only for their financial gain, but also to maintain the integrity of their worldview and their self-image. So I'm curious, I'd like to kind of ask you the question, like, how do you stay so positive and upbeat and energetic? And, you know, because I experience you as like a, a rock solid leader, someone that I could lean on in those moments where I'm in doubt. So what's what's your source of solidity and and? Oh, uh, you know, I would say that a couple of things. One is I have a real kind of spiritual discipline, which is I really rely on twelve step meetings, and I was going to nine a week during the. Uh, pandemic. I'm, I've been doing that for 40 years. And, you know, because that's where I get kind of spiritual renewal and confirmation and validation. And also the opportunities for service that you get through that, which is really what keeps people sane. You know, if you're feeling depressed, um, or if you're feeling disconsolate or uncertain or an anxious, the one thing that will transform that immediately like magic is if you try to help somebody else. And you get a lot of those opportunities in 12-step programs. I do a lot. I do meditation every day. So that centers me spiritually. It's like when I, you know, I did a lot of uh, whitewater kayaking and and a lot of first ascents on on big rivers all over the world and when you're scouting a rapid you you climb a bluff above the rapid and you look at it for a long time and make a uh, make a, a plan you make a line that you're how you're going to get through it and the moves you're going to have to make and then you try to stay on that line and if you can do that you're going to be okay and a lot of times you'll wash out and then you're at the mercy of the river and that's what to me meditations are like it's like sitting still and planning your day and say how am i going to stay spiritually centered during this day and these difficulties and asking for help you know and then trying to say okay when i speak to this child i'm not going to get angry i'm going to try to be understanding when i speak to this you know a worker or or the, a, a business partner or whatever i'm going to do it in a way that's calm and and not give in to anger or fear or whatever and so, you know, that helps me a lot. And of course, a lot of times you you can't stick with your plan. You end up washing out and then you're, you know, but you get another chance the next day. God's given us the gift of time, but he cut it into these manageable units called days. And every day you can start over and try, you know, try to, yeah. try to do better. And then, uh, you know, my family 
is really important to me. My family had a much harder time uh, during the pandemic because of me, because of my, you know, resistance and and skepticism, you know, ended up ended up in some cases hurting them, you know, in their life. And that to me was the most difficult part of it. Um, but otherwise, I just, you know, I tried to just stay spiritually centered. And as long as I do that, I'm, I'm I feel like I can I can bear anything. Have you been able to maintain a meditation practice in the you know during the the rigors and the daily yeah. intensity of the campaign? Yeah, yeah, I, I have to. It's not a, wow. it's not an option for me. You know what I do, Charles? I do a hike. I do a walking meditation. So I, you know, I hike every morning in the wilderness, and I do my meditations then. And I have a you know a, a discipline that I go to that I've been doing for forty years, and it just works well for me. You know, it keeps me centered for most of the day. By the end of the day, you know, everything gets ragged. I have a friend who says that the devil sleeps late and it's really easy to be a good person in the morning. But, you know, by late afternoon, that you know, he's putting on his, you know, his dress coat and his tuxedo and spats and wants to. <laughs> and uh, it just becomes more, it becomes harder and harder as the day goes on. <laughs> That'd be a, a cool campaign promise, you know. I promise that I will meditate every day throughout my presidency. I don't, I don't think we've really heard that from a candidate. And even, you know, part of me right now is just the very fact that this conversation is happening portends a profound shift in American consciousness. This, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine in prior elections, these topics being talked about, frankly, by a major candidate, some kind of changes in the air. I believe. I'd kind of given up hope on politics. I thought that, okay, the change is going to have to, and this is actually still true. It's not either or, it's both and, but the superficial level of politics, you know, who's in charge, who's president, that's going to change last. And we're going to, the change is going to have to come from the inside, from the inside, from the gradual hollowing out of the defining stories of our civilization. And maybe the last thing to change will be the most superficial level. And so I'd pretty much given up, you know, I certainly had no intention of participating in electoral politics at all. I mean, of course, not as a politician, that we'd be, I'd be terrible at that. But even, you know, as being involved in a campaign as I am now. But I think like a lot of people, a new hope has awakened in me. And I'm in conversations, I'm finding so much resonance. It's like the hope never quite died. A, a year or two ago, I wrote an essay called The America That Almost Was and Yet May Be. And it was about the JFK assassination and actually your father's assassination as well. And I, I basically said, well, for one thing, that a certain, I can't remember actually exactly what I said, but the idea is that there was a timeline in which America was, however flawed, it was moving toward greater and greater virtue. And by the 1960s, a civil rights movement was underway. And we had in JFK, an anti-imperialist president who was picking up where Roosevelt and some of his more radical cabinet had left off, who wanted to dismantle the British empire, not take over its helm, uh, who wanted, JFK wanted to support independence movements around the world. He was an anti-imperialist and wanted peace with the Soviet Union and to scale down the industri military industrial complex. And imagine 
all of that wealth that hadn't been devoted toward war, Johnson's war on poverty could have succeeded. We would be living in a completely different, if we hadn't been trying to assert dominance over the world by violence for 60 years and had turned all of that resource toward the healing and, and flourishing of America, imagine where we would be right now. And, and that timeline was cut short on November 22nd, 1963. And then following that, the assassinations of RFK and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in that period. And I feel like maybe that timeline hasn't died. Maybe we can pick up that thread. And it's so significant that a Kennedy just so happens to be in a position to do that. It's one of the uh, synchronicities that speak to or speak from a larger organizing intelligence in the world. Yeah, uh, the way that I look at that history is you had Eisenhower give that famous speech, which was the most, probably looking back at it now, it may be the most important speech in American history. There's a, there's probably five in that category that I would you know point to. Uh, Winthrop's speech on the slip of the of the Arbella in 1608, in which he said, you know, the city on the hill speech, and then the Gettysburg address. You know, Roosevelt's speech in 1932 about the only thing we have to fear, fear itself. But probably Eisenhower's speech is the most important because he warned America against the emergence of a military industrial complex. That, and he was, you know, the leading general in World War II, the commander of all the allied forces. And for him to say the biggest threat to democracy is the rise of the military industrial complex. You know, he was the perfect person to say that message. It wasn't Adlai Stevenson. It wasn't Henry Wallace saying the message. It was, right. you know, it was a war commander. Why didn't he do anything about it? He could have, you know, he was, he was. He could have done it when he was, but, you know, he got, he, he wanted to. And that's one of the reasons he started relying on the CIA so much is because he, he didn't not want to go to war with the Soviets. And he believed that you know, empowering Alan Dulles, that Dulles could somehow keep him out of war and then giving Dulles the, the capacity to make these little wars all over the world and kill people and fix elections. You could do it without, you know, get, uh, confronting nuclear war. But, you know, so then my uncle comes into office and has a three-year hand-to-hand combat with his military brass and his intelligence apparatus to keep us out of war, which he successfully does. And he, my uncle... You know, a week before he dies, signs a national security order, getting out, ordering all 16,000 troops out of Vietnam. They're going to combat troops. He wouldn't put in the combat troops. They wanted him to put in 250,000. He sent 16,000 military advisors and said, it's their fight. And if they can't win it, it's, it's not our fight. But immediately after he died, Johnson revoked that order and then sent, you know, after the Tonkin Gulf incident a year later sent the 250,000 ultimately 500,000 over and 56,000 will never return including my cousin George Skakel who died during the Tet Offensive and many many other people that I knew at that time and I'm sure that you knew too so we had that trauma that added you know that was another trauma that that pushed us down the road to the military industrial complex and then, you know, the last big drama was um, was 9-11, which kind of sealed the deal and turned America into a uh, surveillance state at home and, a, you know, an imperial state abroad of, of constant, unending, forever wars. I had a, a, a conversation actually this morning, a long conversation um, with Joel Pollack, 
who is the editor in chief and kind of you know a co-founder with Andrew Breitbart's uh, Breitbart's. Now, why would I be talking to you know a, a guy from you know one of the big conservative newspapers? But he was saying the same thing. He was saying that you know that you just said that we need to go back to that time in that fork in the road when you know John Kennedy was killed. And he said he said to me that Trump Trump said kept saying make America great again. And a lot of people thought oh he means go back to the 1950s and Jim Crow laws and all that, but most people, when they say make America great again, are really thinking of the time during the Kennedy administration, the time up to then, and that fork in the road that we took, you know, when my uncle died. And then my father comes along and he runs against the military industrial complex. That's his issue. He's running against the war and then he gets killed. So that trauma and then the trauma of Vietnam, then 9-11, pushes yeah. down the road in that war. And what um, Pollock said to me, and I, I had this wonderful conversation with him where, you know, we ended up figuring out the values that we really shared rather than the issues that keep us apart, the tribal issues, which, you know, both of us can retreat to anytime. So we were really talking about what are the things we have in common? What are the things that we can build a common bridge for all Americans uh, to cross these kind of tribal divides and become one people again. How do we do that? And, and you know, he, that's what he said to me. He said, when he thinks of Make America Great, it's, you know, going back to that time, to the time we took that fork down this bad road, down the road to Imperium and national security state. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I know a lot of people resonate with that. So many people are are sick of the vitriol, you know, and the the venom that characterizes like everything's people shouting at each other and and trying to incite as much indignation and outrage as possible against the horrible people on the other side. And that's another reason that why I've been so much attracted to this to this campaign, you know, to your candidacy. Like you're not doing that, and it's not out of some restraint. It's because that's not your truth. That kind of let's vanquish the evil people and dance over their uh, humiliated corpse, you know, like, that's not what you're doing. Like, you really sincerely, every president gives lip service to it. I'm going to be the president of all the people, Republicans and Democrats. But I've seen you again and again, actually put that into action. I mean, I think we're ready for it. I think people are so tired of the division, which has even penetrated to their families. I mean, are we really that different? in our basic values? And if not, how have we been maneuvered into spending 99% of our energy fighting each other and almost 0% actually changing the disastrous course of our society? Uh, it feels almost orchestrated, all of this vitriol towards each other as part of what, what they used to call the bourbon strategy, which was the strategy, you know, they called it that during the Civil War in the South at the elite class. Um, which was called the Bourbons, which were like the Yankees of New England. They were the Bourbon. The aristocracy kept the blacks and whites fighting each other and hating each other because it then uh, allowed them to be manipulated, allowed the, the ruling class, the elites, to basically strip mine their wealth, their assets, their rights, and while they were distracted yeah. in the battle against each other. And I feel a lot of times like that's what we, we're living in that today, that all of this, these, uh, you know, like you say, the orchestrated anger and indignation that uh, it's just part of the the daily, you know, drill that 
CNN is telling us that, that we need to do that at Fox News, that we need to hate the other side, and that yeah. the people who are getting at the advantage of that are the advertisers and the, the upper elites. Is there any final thing you, you'd like to say uh, before we... Uh... <laughs> you put me on the spot. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I've enjoyed the conversation, and I always, I always love talking to you, Charles. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time. I'll be talking to you soon. Have a good day.